Hello, Petra Pearls listeners. This is Jen Dawson, Petra's Associate Director of Educational Programs. And October 13th through 15th of 2023, I had the privilege of attending the Symposium on Hydratinitis Superativa Advances hosted by the HS Foundation. While I was there, I was able to learn a lot about what's being done in HS research, but I also had the opportunity to sit down and discuss some specific presentations. So one of those presentations was given by Dr. Lynn Petakova. Dr. Lynn Petakova is Assistant Professor of Dermatology and Epidemiology at Columbia University and has been doing a lot of tremendous work with Genome-Wide Association Studies, also known as GWAS. So here she is now to give us a recap of her talk and just what it means for hydratinitis superativa. Thank you so much for being here. Now, yesterday we started the meeting off right away and you, I know, gave two talks. So I have some specific questions, but why don't you give people the highlights of your talks and then we'll talk a little bit more about some exciting things. Yeah, so um, I wanted to drive home the point that I'm involved in two different projects around genetics because there's two different sets of methods um, that are based on like the two types of buckets that genetic diseases fall into. And one are um, diseases that are caused, they're called single gene disorders, or they happen because there's a rare pathogenic mutation in just one gene. So an example of that is like breast cancer that's caused by mutations in BRCA1. Mm. That's a single gene disorder. And then there's disease that can be caused um, by other genetic components, but you'll never find like a pathogenic mutation in those patients. It's like an accumulation of risk variants, we call them. Um, so to study the first type of diseases, we're using sequencing, exome sequencing it's called, and the second set of diseases, we're using genome-wide association studies. Um, different methods, different strategies, and our group is involved in both types of studies. So I presented preliminary results from both of those projects yesterday. Okay, so you're talking about these two different strategies. Break that down for me in like patient terms. Like what is that going to mean for patients down the road? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. Like my goal is to be able to get enough genetic knowledge that we can use that when a patient comes in, we can uh, take a look at their genetics and uh, learn a little bit more about what's causing their disease. And this is important, especially for a disease like HS, where there's so many different flavors of disease. When you start talking to patients, they'll have different sets of comorbidities that they're dealing with. They'll have different experiences when they're put on the same treatment, right? And so we think that there's underlying biological differences that are driving those different treatment responses. Um, and we know from other clinical areas that we can use genetic information in a person's genome to understand like how best to treat that per person's version of disease. Mm -hmm. That's the goal. So yesterday you talked um, in your first talk, you had identified four key loci. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So what does that mean exactly? Because to me, who's not a scientist, it sort of sounds like that's a big deal. Like you've kind of identified these maybe genes that are contributing to HS. So talk about that some more. Yeah. So it absolutely is a big deal. Um, one of the reasons why I started studying HS is because there have not been very many genetic studies. Um, and in fact, 2010, was the last time that there was a major breakthrough in a genetic discovery. So it's been a long time coming from this. Um, those 
um, those loci. So loci is how um, geneticists, what they call a region. So I'm gonna use the word region. It's a particular place in the genome. We know there's 23 chromosomes, right? Um, and among those 23 chromosomes, there's like smaller regions that have genes, particular genes. And so we identified four regions that have strong associations to HS. What that means is that there's genetic variants there that we find more frequently among people with HS than we do in looking at people without HS or just in the general population. Not dramatic differences. So we can take a healthy people, we know some of them are gonna have those variants, but statistically, we're seeing them more often in HS people. And the reason why that's important is because even though we know um, that those um, variants are shared in everyone because they're occurring more frequently, that tells us that there are genes in that region of the genome that are making somebody more vulnerable or more susceptible to HS. And so that gives us a clue about the biology just from the genes that are in that region. Um, and for us, the really exciting finding is that there's a ton of genes that are known to influence hair follicle development. Um, and so as you probably know, a lot of the cutting edge therapies that are being developed and tested for HS target the immune system. Mm -hmm. And for sure, we know that, there are, that the immune system is involved in it. But what our studies are saying is that we need to take a closer look at the hair follicle, that the hair follicle could be sending an aberrant signal to the immune system and the immune system's doing its job responding to that signal. What that means is that if you shut down the immune system, right, you'll stop the signal, but as soon as you take away the therapy, that that like aberrant signal, that problematic signal in the hair follicle is still there and the immune system will wake up and start responding to it again. So, so that's where the direction that it's pointing, there's still a lot of work to be able to say that with, um, with a reasonable amount of certainty. Um, but it kind of points the field in a new direction, which is why it's so exciting. That is really exciting. And my mind is kind of going to also alopecia areata. Do you think there's some potential crossover there with targeted therapies for HS and then maybe for alopecia areata? Or are they two completely separate situations? Yeah, so so the thing that they have in common is that it's the something's wrong at the hair follicle, right? The hair mm -hmm. follicle is definitely involved in both of those um, in both of those diseases. Um, what we know about the immunology of those diseases that looks very different between mm -hmm. the two. Um, so so it's too early to mm -hmm. say. Like we know that. Um, we know we, we have a set of genes that we think are acting in the hair follicle to trigger hair loss mm -hmm. with, with alopecia areata. Um, the, our work in HS it has identified a set of genes. There are very different type of hair mm -hmm. follicle genes in mm -hmm. HS than they are in alopecia areata. Mm -hmm. um, but it is really interesting thinking about how this one end organ can cause so many different clinical presentations. So it's definitely like a really um, fascinating question to think about. And I think down the line when we have more information, um, it'll be super interesting to see what falls out from that. Like, why is it different? Yeah, I, exactly. So with this really exciting work, and you, like you said, we're just kind of at the beginning now with this great information coming in. What is the next step? And then where is this, you know, in two to three years? Yeah, yeah. So um, it's a really exciting first step, but it is very much a first step. Mm -hmm. So we had... Um, 
I think between five and 6,000 um, uh, HS research participants in this study that gave us those four regions in the genome. Um, if you look at a disease like inflammatory bowel disease or breast cancer, they've got tens of thousands of research participants in their mm -hmm. GWAS. Mm -hmm. So we're just scratched the surface. What happens when you've got like 60,000 cases or research participants, you'll get 200 loci, mm. right? And so that's a big difference. And the reason why that's important is because when you have 200 loci that you're looking at, um, we're able to take, um, to then measure a person's risk by looking just at those loci in a person, right? So if there's 200 loci, you can have zero risk alleles across all of them, mm -hmm. or you can, at the other end of the spectrum, you could have a risk allele at every one of those 200 loci, right? And so so it's a fast and easy way to measure how much risk a person is born with for a disease. Mm -hmm. And what research in other areas like inflammatory bowel disease and breast cancer, we know that people who have a high burden of those risk alleles um, have risk that's equivalent to having a family member with disease, of having one pathogenic mutation. Um, and so um, there's a lot of work being done to establish um, what we call clinical utility mm -hmm. for that genetic information. That means that um, knowing that a person has a high burden of these risk alleles, that gives your doctor information that can change their treatment plan and improve outcomes for the patient, right? That's what we're working towards mm -hmm. being able to do. The first step to doing that is finding those 200 loci, mm -hmm. right? So what I would, so um, we presented data on 5,000. Mm -hmm. I will tell you at home right now, we have probably another 4,000 cases, um, data that we've received from more collaborators. I also received funding this year. So um, our group is gonna be generating data on another 2,500 cases. Um, so the way that GWAS work is you meta-analyze generate more data, meta-analyze, generate more data, meta-analyze. So my five-year plan is to do a meta-analysis every year for the next five years, hoping that at the end of that five years, we'll have 10,000 cases, and that will give us a good start for developing this polygenic risk score for mm -hmm. HS. That, that polygenic risk score gives us gives us two, two things to work towards. One is that we can assign a person risk when they come show up to the doctor. Um, the other thing um, that's really a really interesting way that those risk scores are being used is to understand relationships between diseases, right? Mm. So we can take our HS polygenic risk score and look in um, other disease populations to try to understand what the relationship, what the genetic or biological relationship is between those two diseases. We saw a little bit of that in the first talk by um, Dr. Sun mm -hmm. was talking about how um, these methods that use genetic information to understand that. And the reason why that's important it's because it helps direct clinical trials mm -hmm. and to understand if there's shared genetic similarity between two diseases, then in theory, the same drugs can be used to treat them. The other really important information is that sometimes they'll have the same risk variant, but it's different alleles. Mm -hmm. And what that means is that um, an allele that increases risk for one disease can be protective of the other. And that's also, so we think that that kind of relationship um, is what drives a lot of adverse events that we see in drug trials. 
And so knowing that information, then like if we know that there's an inverse relationship between MS and HS, what that means is if you use an MS drug to treat HS, you could actually make the HS worse mm -hmm. because of the inverse relationship. Mm -hmm. So like all of that kind of knowledge, you need that polygenic risk score. And to get the polygenic risk score, you need the big GWAS. So holy smokes. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm just like imagining the ripple effect of this information yeah. and like where you are, like just on the ground floor of getting this going. And yeah. I'm like, this is really incredible work. So one question I have is how are you getting those cases? Like, what, is there something that our dermatologists in the clinic can do to help propel your research? Yeah. And so, um, I, so I'm not a clinician. I don't, right. um, manage uh, disease for anybody. So um, collaborations are super important. And I've uh, specifically prioritized collaborations with, um, with academic medical centers that have HS specialty clinics, because now I'm working with like really the experts of disease and they're going to help me interpret the data mm -hmm. and understand like what the clinical effects are of the genetic variants that I'm studying, um, that I'm discovering. Um, and so an excellent place to start is to talk to your dermatologist. Um, if they're not already involved in genetic studies, I'm, you know, I'm happy. Our information is all over the internet, the HS Genetics Consortium, um, my Twitter handle, my email is out there. Um, so I'm always looking for new collaborations. Um, and our lab is also thinking about, you know, a major issue in the U.S. is that um, health insurance is tied to employment. Um, HS is a debilitating disease, mm -hmm. so we know that there are lots of patients who don't have um, like clinical services that they can go to to enroll in genetic studies. So we're building um, infrastructure to have like internet access to our studies. So patients can go online and learn about what we're doing, consent to participate, give us the um, data that we need to run the genetic study. Um, and then if they consent to participate, we'll send them saliva collection kits. Mm -hmm. They spit into a tube, send it back to us, and then they're part of the study. Remarkable. I love that you are thinking about ways to make it more accessible. That's so important. Yeah. I heard Dr. Harris Tryon's talk this morning about the microbiome. Were uh -huh. you, did you listen to her I talk? I did. It okay. amazing talk. Okay. She's okay. Brilliant. Right? Yeah. So uh, it was really cool. There's like yours, there was a lot of information coming out so quickly. Um, and I was trying to process as much as I could. But how does the work you're doing? maybe relate or complement the work that Dr. Harris Tryon is doing? Yeah, um, that is a great question. I think, um, so the hair follicle itself creates this really rich environment for microbiota. And we know like the structure of the hair follicle, right? There's the pore where the hair fiber comes out and right underneath the surface, there's, a, it almost looks like a cup. There's this like um, little well and it has a bottom to protect the lower hair follicle from the bacteria to keep them sequestered. And I think right in there, there's a lot of communication between our skin and the microbiota in this cup. And I think some of the genes that we're starting to see fall out from our studies are genes that communicate with the microbiome. They send signals back and forth to each other. That's one of the things that um, 
Dr. Harris, uh, uh, Harris Tryon, <laughs> Tryon, yeah, um, was talking about the signals that they use to communicate with each other, right? And the bacteria generate lipids or sugar molecules, and the host then has genes that can modulate them um, and send signals back to the bacteria. And um, to start seeing some genes popping up that are like in the hair follicle, in that cup, um, that are known to, you know, modulate some of these markers or communication molecules that are flying back and forth. I think we're going to find some really interesting ways about how that communication is contributing to HS. This is fascinating work. I am so blown away by all of the information that I'm learning here at this meeting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your incredible work. One question here I just want to wrap up with is if you could summarize what this means for patients in like one quick paragraph, what, what does it mean? Like how, how can they take hope away from your work? Um, so the reason why there are no treatments, one of the messages that have emerged out of genetics over the last 30 years consistently over and over again is that if you can understand the genetics, you can develop better treatments. Um, you can develop better treatments and also figure out which patients are going to benefit from which treatments. We're seeing it happen. I keep saying breast cancer because they really have been at the forefront. 30 years ago, the BRCA genes were discovered, right? And today we know there's a set of drugs that um, people with BRCA mutations respond well to, and people who don't have BRCA mutations don't respond to, it doesn't help their disease. Like that's where we wanna get to with our, and, um, with our work. And the other thing is it took 30 years for breast cancer to get there, but they were, you know, they were forging out a trail, right? Trapping down the trees to get right. there. And now we have this like path to follow from yeah. all of those other accomplishments. So I'm so hopeful and so excited that it's not gonna be 30 years from HS that we're gonna be able to start seeing benefits from this work within the next 10 years. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Petakova, and good luck with all of your continued work. Thank you. I really appreciate Dr. Lynn Petakova's research and giving us her time to discuss her groundbreaking work. In addition to speaking with Dr. Petakova, I also had the opportunity to conduct two poster interviews. So first up is Nicholas Chang, a medical student at the University of Toronto. I am here with you at the Symposium for HS Advances, and we are looking at your poster, Hydratinitis Superativa in Children and Adolescents, an update on pharmacologic treatment options. So you did this work with several PEDRA members. We've mm -hmm. got Dr. Sibold, Dr. Levy, and Dr. Lara Corrales. So kind of tell me overall the project, and then I'll ask some more questions. Yeah, sure. So um, we know that about a third of people who have HS, they present with symptoms in children and adolescents, so under 18 years old. However, we know that there is a lack of evidence in treating um, this patient population specifically. So the goals of this study were one, to review the different pharmacologic treatment options for um, children and adolescents living with HS, and then two, to review the safety, monitoring, um, and other considerations in this population specifically that we don't normally think about in adults. So um, this was a review study and the steps of this review are very simple. One, we just identified some keywords and we made it very simple. The treatment key concepts were hydrodenitis superativa, pediatrics, and treatment. We wanted to include as many studies as we could, try and capture a wide net here. Um, and then what we did is we 
um, tried to find as many papers as we could through this study, um, reviewed the abstracts, reviewed the, uh, the different studies that we could, and then where we lacked information about specific treatment options, we included adult studies to be able to round out our study to make it more uh, comprehensive. So um, what, we do, what we did here in this poster is that we um, presented the three different main domains of treatment. So there's topical treatments, systemic treatments, and then the biologics. And we highlighted in um, the pediatric population where these, um, these medications are useful, in what specific patients, with what comorbidities, and we offer some monitoring and safety um, recommendations as well. But what we did mostly in this study is highlighted where this level of evidence came from. So we see here that in most cases for pediatrics, they're coming from case series, they're coming from case reports, and a lot of the time they're just coming from expert, expert opinion. So extrapolation from adult guidelines, extrapolation from other indications like psoriasis, like atopic dermatitis, kind of borrowing some of that safety data to try and use that in our HS patients. So this is important because it, this study... Um, kind of gives us a menu of different treatment options that can be used in children with some safety and monitoring recommendations. Mm -hmm. And it really highlights the lack of evidence in the pediatric population specifically. So hopefully this study can become a catalyst to um, breed further research to show that we need more evidence in this population specifically um, because it, it, it matters for the HS patients. Absolutely. I mean, it's so difficult for people, especially children, to even get a diagnosis of HS. So what, going back through all of these case reports, what, was there anything that surprised you with your findings? Yeah, so some of the things that surprised me, I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but was that for a lot of these treatments, these case series and case reports, there was like two or three patients. There was like not a lot of um, like numbers of children and adolescents in these studies. So even for things like um, tetracyclines or um, spironolactone, which we think are like mainstay in the adult population, we really don't have that much evidence in the pediatric population. And so more studies need to be conducted in that. And what's really to highlight here is that rifampin and clindamycin, which is one of the most well-studied options in pediatrics, because there's only one prospective um, like non-comparative pilot study, that's the highest level of evidence in this population at all. And that's, that's a little bit sad for these patients, right? So mm -hmm. um, another thing that really surprised me was that for adalimumab, Humira, also known mm -hmm. as the brand name, um, it's one of the mainstay therapies for HS in adults. However, mm -hmm. it is the only um, current biologic indicated for children 12 years and up, and it got this indication through extrapolation of adult data. They didn't actually run trials in the pediatric population to gain that indication. And that just doesn't really happen for a lot of these um, other diseases like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis, where they actually right. run trials in that population. So right. it kind of shows the like lack of involvement of this population in um, clinical trials. Mm -hmm. Why is it so difficult to, to get your hands on a large number of case series or case reports? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that yeah, it's a bit of like a systematic question mm -hmm. of like these barriers of involving this population in uh, case series, case reports. One, I do think that there is, because they're a more vulnerable population, right. they have parents involved, it's a little bit more challenging to mm -hmm. get case reports and case series published in this population. And um, I think that involvement in clinical trials is also a little bit challenging because um, like these big pharma companies, although they, they mean their best, they don't necessarily want to expose children and adolescents to these therapies until they know that it's 
or I have more evidence to prove that it's safe because we know that in children, um, safety is like one of the biggest parameters mm -hmm. for these these um, these patients. Mm -hmm. Their parents really want safe medications almost more than they want efficacious medications. Mm -hmm. Like safety mm -hmm. is number one priority. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is another barrier as well. Mm -hmm. So using this information that you gained and really the overall lack of of case reports and series to even study and look at, like how does that change the conversation in the clinic setting? Like how can you get patients and parents on board with helping to support research so that we can in turn provide better, more targeted therapies for them down the line? Yeah, so there's a couple of things to break down there. One, I think that just having that open conversation with parents and with adolescents or children if they're mm -hmm. interested in having that conversation, saying that we are using adult data to treat your child or to mm -hmm. treat you and kind of involving that in them and telling them straight up that this is kind of what the current landscape is. Mm -hmm. um, that's the first thing. And two is trying to involve them. Maybe this is a call for action for them. Maybe they mm -hmm. can be a case series or they can be a case report to further the development and further the um, literature to, to make sure that other children and other adolescents might not have to go through the same kind of uh, you know, into the unknown mm -hmm. prescribing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what's next for you? What's, uh, what's your uh, next research step, I guess, building on top of this project? Yeah, so um, one, it's the advocacy piece, trying to make sure that children and adolescents can, as much as we can, be represented in these larger trials for all these new medications coming down the pipeline. That's step, you know, that's an ongoing uh, mm -hmm. advocacy effort that we want to maintain. Number two is now that we know that there is such a lack of case series and case reports, it's about trying to contribute more to that body of literature mm -hmm. to make sure that even for some of the things that we think are, you know, mainstay or, or, you know, standard of care for some of these things, making sure that there's at least some published evidence out there for this population specifically, as opposed to continuing to just extrapolate from adult guidelines mm -hmm. or adult studies. So trying to for some of these new medications, like the new biologics, if we know that some children are being treated with them because that's just what they will need, but making sure that we can try to publish some case series, publish some case reports to um, further that conversation and hopefully prove to some of these pharma companies, prove to other dermatologists that it is safe and we can involve them in future clinical trials. Wonderful, excellent work. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and I just really appreciate your dedication to HS. It was a pleasure, Jen. Thank you so much. Next up is Sydney Dong. She is a medical student at UCSD. So um, thank you so much for your time today, Sydney. I am here at your poster about shared decision-making tools for adolescent patients seeking HS-related care without an established diagnosis. So we know this is a really big deal. A lot of adolescents don't have a diagnosis for a very long time. They have a very difficult time even reaching a dermatologist before they can even get any kind of really good care. So if you could introduce yourself and then tell me about your research project, that would be awesome. All right, yeah. Hi, I'm Sydney. Thank you for stopping by. I am a third year medical student taking her research year working with Dr. George Hightower. So our goals for this project essentially was to create a more systemic or systematic process in order to have the conversation of establishing the diagnosis, presenting the possible care options, understanding where patients are at with their care journey, um, as well as building consensus and creating a plan um, for the longitudinal relationship that we'll have 
with the dermatologist since HS is something that is very pervasive and affects a lot of aspects of their life. Um, so essentially what we wanted was we wanted to tailor, since we are based out of radius, we wanted to tailor this conversation to adolescents, you know, kind of the onset of when HS starts for a lot of people. So what we wanted to do was create a tool, kind of swapping out the traditional intake form that might not be specific, might not really be tailored or even educational um, for the patients to really understand before a clinician even stops by to talk to them. So what we did was we wanted to create a evidence-based shared decision-making tool um, to be used during clinical encounters to streamline the encounters and also expedite the conversation of what do we want to do, um, partner together for your care today to the patient. So for our methods, we use principles from the Ottawa, Deci the Ottawa Decision Support Framework and the International Patient Decision Aid Standards um, to create kind of the basis of what constitutes a very effective patient decision aid, which we termed as our shared decision-making tools. Um, so we did a PubMed search, finding what was already in the literature, as well as also understanding what are effective ways to counsel to adolescents um, in creating this tool, this um, kind of um, shared decision-making tool or this patient driver, as we call it, as in the patient is in the driving seat, kind of choosing what they want, understanding what they have. Um, so here we have a form. So we have a four-step component that we kind of set our, our steps in shared decision-making. We have um, the patient and with the assistance of the parent, because this is a pediatric encounter, completing the clinical navigator tool, um, understanding di diagnostic criteria, understanding the treatment options, um, gathering their preferences and also just other pertinent medical information, such as if they have PCOS or if they have inflammatory bowel disease. Next, it's when the clinician enters in, we can start that conversation. We can review their preferences and their understanding just to make sure that they understand all the options, the risk, benefits, alternatives, and side effects. Um, after that, we build consensus with the patients. We offer them, so there's a section here that says, what are your treatment preferences today? Topical medications, medications with mouth topicals, biologics, procedurals. Of course, that comes with a clinician being able to counsel them saying, hey, this is where your disease state is, this is like how it affects you. Um, and we can make a decision that makes sense for their care, but also aligns with the patient and the family's preferences. Um, from then, we establish the plan. We give them kind of next steps for how to keep this um, care plan going on as it is a relationship as well as different resources that are there, such as eliciting preferences of if you want more information in a different language or if you want um, to be connected in different support groups. So within the tool itself, there are four components we identified, getting the right diagnosis, reviewing your past care, understanding their past interactions with the healthcare system in regards to their possible HS diagnosis, um, creating the plan that aligns with their preferences and um, understanding what they have possibly used before. Just so you know, we don't wanna reinvent the wheel. We wanna choose something that makes sense for them. Um, so for results, we created this tool um, per the 16 to 18 age range. It meets sixth grade reading level. Um, and this can be used alongside a validated quality of life tool, such as the Teenager Quality of Life Index. Um, overall, this tool, we estimate takes about five to seven minutes to complete, varying on the patient themselves, and includes a total of 47 questions if every single question applies to them. So this is our starting point. This is two to three months in the making, and we're only trying to refine it and make it better. So we're currently using this within our patient encounters now, and we're also translating them into epic templates and it's been a really good educational tool, not only for our patients to expedite the conversation, but for our learners to pass through. So our medical students who might not be rotating in, might not be familiar, our pediatric residents, our um, 
family medicine residents or even our dermatology residents and fellows just how to have this conversation. And now, so you're currently using it in clinic, but how do you expect it to translate in telehealth? So telehealth, that's a great, that's a great question, right? Because it's just a lot of this is based on the patient being there and being able to fill out exactly. school. Um, a lot of questions are always like, do you ever think about making it electronic? That is a dream, yeah. <laughs> but that is something that we plan to explore in the future. I was just having a conversation with Natasha here and she was saying like, you know what? Giving patients more information before starting the conversation. Okay. Um, but even then, if uh, let's say a resident or a fellow is about to have this telehealth conversation, they can even use the principles of this guide to help steer that conversation. Because mm -hmm. some patients don't want to fill it out themselves. It looks overwhelming, yeah, not going to lie. Sure. So sometimes we'll just sit down and just mark the questions as they talk to us. Okay. And how do you envision this changing how patients are sharing in that co-decision making in the clinic? How do you anticipate this tool helping them? Yeah. One thing is we were... I was pretty surprised because I'm, I'm new to this space where a lot of people have gone to the ED multiple times, but they still don't know that they have HS. Mm -hmm. However, it's documented in their chart. So even if they were diagnosed, the conversation was not had. So this tool kind of helps us, like they see it firsthand, and then this provides an opportunity for them to even know what questions to ask. And also it slows us down to be able to explain what the options are, what kind of the trajectory of this might look like. Mm -hmm. um, so it creates conversations, it keeps patients in the loop, and also, it just elicits their preference instead of just saying, hey, you're here, we, you need to do this. We want them to feel confident um, that they can do the medication and that they like will trust are trusting the process. Excellent work. I'm excited to see where this moves, you know, how this moves HS research forward and also just patient experiences in the clinic, too. It's, it's really great work. Thank you so much for your time, Sydney. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you would like to access more content, please visit our website at www.peterresearch.org. You can also follow us on social media at Peter Research. And make sure to subscribe to the Peter Pearls podcast channel on iTunes, Google, and Spotify so you never miss a new episode. Thanks for listening.